Thank you for your welcome. Uh, when I became Pro Vice-Chancellor, around the university they said, the chocolate professor has become PVC. <laughs> um, to turn to more important matters, uh, it is of course a very long-standing question. Is it possible to say the creeds without denying one's intellect? In the early 80s, I had a long letter from a Methodist local preacher, lay preacher, and um, quoted substantially from it in a little Lent book. He was a very ordinary person who left school at 14, had no educational advantages, worked hard all his life at very ordinary jobs, and yet he wrote this. It is unfortunate, but nevertheless a fact, that the Christian church as a whole is losing ground so far as active membership is concerned, simply because on conscience grounds they cannot any longer keep up a charade. I know from personal experience how difficult it is to support certain dogmas today. Well, he went on at great lengths, um, and he uh, mentioned, amongst other things, the progress in science, which has, he said, become the central pivot of human understanding. So it's natural that any form of supernaturalism has become open to question, and questioning has long since ceased to be the prerogative of academics. It seems that literacy is in the ascendant, so fundamentalism is being challenged as never before. I do not feel that this is something to be feared, he writes, but rather welcomed, for it indicates that a renewed search for truth is replacing dogmatic demands that have caused so much frustration, which impedes rather than aids spiritual experiences. And so he goes on. It is an old and troubling question, but I think it's worth starting by asking what is the problem what is the nature of the problem? Can we clarify the issues? Well, of course, we have already anticipated the point about scientific understanding. And if you think about the content of the creeds, there will be some people who will be deeply troubled about creation, particularly those who promulgate creationism and the literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. There will be those who will be troubled by what we now know about genetics and DNA and all that, and the so-called virgin birth. And there will be others who will be deeply troubled by the whole idea of the resurrection of the flesh, which actually occurs in those words in one of the well-known creeds, even if the other says resurrection of the body. So one problem is a completely changed understanding of how the world works between the era when the creeds were formed and the era in which we are now asked to affirm our faith, at least some of us. A second important problem is the emphasis in our culture on factuality and literalism. 
often with a very crude understanding of what that means. After all, if you stop to think about it, a huge amount of our language is never meant to be literal. My kids used to have great fun with things like, mum's climbing up the wall. The problem is, somehow, in, with our heads, we've narrowed the intellect down to one kind of rationality, to straight logic, to a claim that language relates to concrete facts in a straightforward kind of way. Now, step back a little and think how ironical that is in the age of film, fiction, fantasy, TV, all the rest of it, not to mention video games and that sort of thing. There is a whole world in which people are naturally dealing with metaphor and parable and symbol, and they know they don't mean it literally, so, why does it have to be such an issue? Particularly when, if you get really in touch with science, you discover that it is constantly using metaphors and models. Scientific language stretches ordinary language to mean something more than ordinary. And yes, they are endeavouring to have a precise understanding through that stretched language, but actually the good scientists know that all models are prov provisional, and there may be further discoveries which will challenge the model, shift it, change the paradigm to use the technical language. So we seem to have notionally a split between, well, we call it the split between the head and the heart, don't we? But actually, knowing and understanding involves very complex brain functions, and they involve both what we call the head and the heart. In fact, they're all in the brain, and the left and right brain contribute different things to our complex understanding of the world. I could get sidetracked into a long lecture on all that because I find it quite fascinating, but I will try not to do that and simply ask you to consider the phrase often used, emotional intelligence. Intelligence and intellect can cover far broader understanding than the narrow literalism which somehow has become our self-conscious way of understanding what the intellect is. So let me state two things before we go any further. Truth is bigger than fact particularly discrete facts which are not connected to one another. And language is far more subtle and complex than it is literal. Some time ago, I came across this little novel 
called Mothering Sunday, and I've just reread it for your sake. It is an extraordinary little story uh, purportedly told by a woman towards the end of the 20th century who was born at the beginning, and it focuses on one day in 1924 when, as a maid in a country house who was orphaned, she had nowhere to go on Mothering Sunday, which you've probably forgotten was the day when maids were allowed to go home and see their mothers. And so uh, the story unfolds. In fact, the young gent from a neighboring country house has been having an affair with her and arranges for her to go around there and, and have an extraordinary day with him in this country house, as if she were not a maid. I won't say any more. You can guess some of it. Now, she is, uh, as a result of that experience and other things, she actually becomes a writer of stories. And uh, every now and again, uh, she talks about being interviewed as an author about her stories and her life and all the rest of it. And towards the end of the book, she starts reflecting on the words we use for stories. There was something more enticing about calling something a tale rather than a story, but this had to do, perhaps, with the suggestion that it might not be wholly truthful. It might have a larger element of invention. About all these words, tale, story, even narrative, there was a sort of question, always hovering in the background, of truth, and it might be hard to say how much truth went with each. There was also the word fiction, which could seem almost totally dismissive of truth, a complete fiction. Yet something that was clearly and completely fiction could also contain, this was the nub and the mystery of the matter, truth. Telling tales, it could have the sense of concocting downright lies, like spinning yarns. But when we get to the very end, always the implication that you were trading in lies, but for her it would always be the task of getting to the quick, the heart, the nub, the pith, the trade of truth-telling. So what was it then exactly, this truth-telling? It was about being true to the very stuff of life. It was about trying to capture, though you never could, the very feel of being alive. It was about finding a language. And it was about being true to the fact, the one thing that one thing only followed from the other, true to the fact that many things in life, oh, so many more than we think, can never be explained at all. Truth is bigger than fact. And telling a story is told from this point of view and that point of view and t'other point of view. And language is more subtle than what we call literal. So I come to the third 
problem. I'll get to the creeds eventually. <laughs> the third one is our individualism. Modernity has radically changed the way in which people think about the self and identity. Now again, I could go off and give you another whole lecture on that. It's a fascinating subject how it's all happened. But having spent most of my life studying the ancient world, I am very conscious of the difference in consciousness between the world in which the creeds were devised and used and the way we think about things ourselves today. We have what has been called self-responsible independence. There are ways in which we make our own truth. We construct, each of us, our own reality. We decide on our own morality. We have autonomy. We like to say we're free and not subject to any authority. We have this first-person standpoint. It's how I see it. And it's that which leads to the problem of integrity. We're all asking ourselves, can I sign up to it? Well, now, as my correspondent in what I was quoting at the beginning recognized, loads of people have said they can't. That's why the churches are empty. It has to be my truth, people think. And they have huge problems with that word dogma. So, having talked about what's the problem, I think we'd better have a page of notes on the problem of dogma, don't you? Dogma and doctrine. For us, these words mean dogmatic truth enforced by authority. Isn't that right? Now, at the Reformation, 39 articles were drawn up which Anglicans still are supposed to subscribe to. And I suppose as the children of the Anglican tradition, Methodists sort of should too, because John Wesley did sort of honor them, as well as the great Anglican Reformation homilies and all the rest of it. John Wesley was Anglican to the core, Charles Wesley even more so. So we have these 39 articles, which are propositions to which people were supposed to be committed, definitions of belief, dogma, doctrine. Well, the question is, is that what creeds are? We'll come to that in a minute. But before we get there, I want to suggest that we need to unpack those words a bit. The word dogma is simply the Greek word for teaching. The word doctrina is simply the Latin word for teaching. 
And in the ancient philosophies that were around at the time when Christianity was growing up, what the philosophers taught was a way of life. Their principal focus was ethics. But in order to reinforce that and provide a context, they gave an account of the world as they believed it was. Because this gave a justification for the way of life they were promulgating. So, take something like Stoicism. Their motto was, live according to nature. So they then gave an account of what nature is like. The whole of nature is a great cosmic spirit, a kind of spiritual fire, material fire too, because out of it is distilled the whole world as we know it. And everything is part of this nature. And you should live according to the spirit which is at the heart of everything. Which, by the way, they called logos, which is the word in the first chapter of John's Gospel, which is usually translated word. But it also meant reason and order and rationality, the rationality at the heart of everything. So you should live according to the rationality at the heart of the cosmos. That was Stoicism. Epicureanism, well, their advice was to follow the pleasure principle, but then, of course, they worked it all out, you know, and you, it just didn't just mean doing everything for your own selfish pleasure, um, but actually, what undergirded their whole philosophy of life was everything is just atoms, which by chance either coalesce or don't coalesce and produce the world as it is, da 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 da. So, what I'm getting at is that the thrust was this is a way of life and this is why you live in this way. So, what did the Christians say? Christians said, live like this because God is the creator of all and everything. And God even sees into the depths of your heart. And in the long run, God will be the judge of how you live and even of the motives behind how you live. Or they would say, live like this because we have been set free, forgiven, set free from all the gone-wrongness through the sacrifice offered by Jesus Christ. So, this is why you should live like this. Or they would say, live like this because in baptism you've been cleansed and given new life by the Holy Spirit. So, live like this. Live like this because Christ has overcome death and so you should keep your bodies pure for the life of the world to come. Well, I could go on. But what I'm getting at is that they were saying there is an overarching story into which our lives fit Scripture gives us this story 
beginning at the beginning with God's creation and coming to the end where everything will come to fruition according to God's purposes. And into that, our lives fit and we're taken up into something much bigger than ourselves. So the teaching, the dogma, or the doctrina, was not definitions and propositions and formulae that you had to sign up to, legal things which require your signature. No, the dogma, the teaching, was narrative, story, Myth, if you like, because what is myth but a religious story which tells you what the world's all about, tells you the way things are. The story, a story not trading in lies, but getting to the quick, the heart, the nub, the pith, to quote Mothering Sunday the trade of truth-telling through narrative. Let me just take a moment to digress and say a little bit more about definition. Can you define God? Hmm? You see, define, the fine bit, means limit. To define is to limit. And in the fourth century, when they were having considerable arguments about exactly how the Father and the Son and the Spirit were related to each other, arguing about the so-called doctrine of the Trinity, the principal fathers of the church who established the traditions which go into our understanding of the mystery of the Trinity, were arguing against someone who claimed to define God and to deduce logically from that definition exactly how the Christ and the Spirit related to the ultimate Father and said they can't all be God. You can't define God was a fundamental principle established during that period. The creeds are not definitions. Let me quote also from someone I love. Ephraim was a poet, theologian, who lived in the fourth century and wrote in Syriac. I'm not the world's best Syriac scholar, um, but I can share him with you in translations done by people who are. And let me just read. Whoever is capable of investigating becomes the container of what he investigates. A knowledge which is capable of containing the omniscient is greater than him, 
for it has proved capable of measuring the whole of him. A person who investigates the father and son is thus greater than them. Far be it then, and something anathema, that the father and son should be investigated while dust and ashes exalts itself. How about a little intellectual humility? That's what Ephraim's saying. And then there is a wonderful passage in which he talks about the way... uh, uh, Another little quote from back there. There is intellectual inquiry in the church, he says, investigating what is revealed. The intellect was not intended to pry into hidden things. And then in another wonderful poem, he shows all the ways in which God has accommodated this utterly transcendent and unknowable self to our level. I'll just read one stanza. Let us give thanks to God who clothed himself in the names of the body's various parts. Scripture refers to his ears to teach us that he listens to us. It speaks of his eyes to show that he sees us. It was just the names of such things he put on. And although in his true being there is not wrath or regret, yet he put on these names too because of our weakness. And then there's a refrain. Blessed is he who has appeared to our human race under so many metaphors. And Ephraim explores in many, many places in his wonderful poetry all the metaphors and the parables and the symbols and all these other things which are used to try and communicate with us, but which can never actually, oh, that dreadful word, literally speak of the one who is beyond anything we can say or think. He has a wonderful parable himself. I think instead of reading it, I will explain it to you because it may not come across. He talks about um, someone teaching a parrot to talk. And he says, the person teaching a parrot to talk puts the mirror in front of his face so that the parrot looks into the mirror so that the parrot thinks he's talking with one of his own kind. And he says, that's the sort of thing God has to do to communicate with us. God has to accommodate the divine self to our level. So, finally, to the creeds. How much more time have I got? (laughs) What sort of a thing are these creeds? Well, I've already said they are not articles of belief. They did, in the fourth century, become tests of orthodoxy. But they were never intended to be like the Reformation articles of belief. They arose in the liturgical context which is still where they are mostly used to this day, 
in churches. In the fourth century, we find many different local creeds were in use. But they universally had a three-part shape. The first part about the Father, the second part about the Son, the third part about the Spirit. They were originally confessions made by converts at baptism in the liturgy. They were learnt by heart to be recited in the baptismal liturgy. Now we know that local churches had their own creeds because when things got pretty difficult in the fourth century, Bishops gathered in council and arguing about the interpretation of Christian faith would say, this is the creed I received at my baptism and would recite the creed. And so we find different bishops with different creeds all producing them. What happened at the Council of Nicaea was that one of those creeds was adopted officially by the gathered company, and a few key words were inserted to rule out what the council decided was a false interpretation of the relationship between father and son. So a little word that some of you may be familiar with, homoousios, which means of one substance, was inserted into the creed to try and set the parameters of true belief in the relationship between father and son. That was in the year 325. In the year 381, after a whole lot of intervening councils which kept producing different creeds, they gathered again to try and clear up the mess and they agreed another creed which is actually the one called the Nicene Creed, which is used in the Mass and the Eucharist and communion services of many of the mainstream churches. It is not the same creed as the Nicene Creed, actually. It's another of these local creeds which was expanded to include affirmation about the Holy Spirit, but also maintained the Nicene formulae in order to get a clear understanding of a clearer understanding of the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So those are the creeds which have become tests of orthodoxy. But creeds themselves began in liturgy. Now, where does this three-part come from? It derives from a much earlier pattern in which candidates for baptism were asked three questions. And the three questions were, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? Candidate says yes and gets dunked in the water. 
Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was crucified under Pontius Pilate and was dead and buried and rose again the third day, alive from the dead and ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of the Father and will come to judge the quick and the dead? Candidate answers, yes, dunked in the water again. Do you believe in the Holy Ghost and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? Yes, dunked in the water again. Uh, by the way, the Greek word baptizo means dunk, so. <laughs> they were, of course, submerged in the water each time. So these three questions were almost certainly based on Matthew 28, 19, which requires baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So this is the old pattern long before creeds. The questions seem to have survived alongside the creeds at a later date, but at the three-part shape, which you find in all the creeds, uh, is it comes from that. Now you go back a bit further and you find in the New Testament some of these uh, stereotyped phrases which you heard in the questions already around. Little summaries and confessions of what it's all about. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures and he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve, da 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 da. Or Romans chapter 1, concerning his son who was born of David's seed according to the flesh, who was declared son of God with power by the spirit of holiness when he was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Or later in Romans, Christ Jesus who died or rather has been raised from the dead, who is on the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Or 1 Peter 3, Christ also suffered for sins that just for the unjust to bring us to God, slain in the flesh but quickened in the spirit, who is on the right hand of God having ascended to heaven, angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him. You can hear the stereotyped catchphrases, the in-language going right back into the New Testament, which is picked up and gets integrated into the baptismal questions and then into the uh, creeds themselves at a later date. In the second century, we find creed-like summaries um, in the letters that people were writing. Um, our God, Jesus Christ, was conceived by Mary according to God's plan of the seed of David and of the Holy Spirit, who was born and was baptized that by his passion he might cleanse water. 
be deaf when everyone speaks to you apart from Jesus Christ, who was of the stock of David, who was from Mary, who was truly born, ate, and drank, was truly persecuted under Pontius Pilate, was truly crucified and died in the sight of beings, heavenly, earthly, and under the earth, who was truly raised from the dead, his father raising him. You hear these phrases which anticipate the forms you find in the creeds. The Christian in language, confessing, affirming their faith, their story. This is what it's all about. This is the truth we're affirming. This is what makes sense of our lives. And then you get towards the end of the second century, you get people writing what they call the rule of faith or the canon of truth in which all of these things seem to come together but never exactly word for word. You get stereotyped confessions summarizing the faith in works from southern France, northern Egypt, you name it. Similar, following similar patterns but not identically word for word. And they're all in the same sort of genre. You know when you talk about literature, you say, what is the genre? Is it a novel or a biography? And you read it differently depending what sort of genre you think it is. Well, they're in the genre of those passages in the Old Testament, like, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and da-da-da-da-da. Or, a wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and laid upon us hard bondage, and we cried to the Lord our God, da 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 and he brought us out of the land of Egypt. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm and with great terror, signs and wonders, he brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so I bring the first fruits, the harvest, first fruits of the harvest, because I've received this land from the Lord my God. Those are from the, what we Christians call the Old Testament. They're confessions, celebrations, liturgy, not articles of belief, though they do, of course, contain the story which is at the heart of everything. So, in the early fourth century, these two roots, the rule of faith or canon of truth and the questions at baptism come together and we find baptismal creeds. And what's happening by now is that people are coming together in Lent as inquirers and attending lectures, being taught what Christianity is all about, leading up to baptism at Easter. Baptism, you die with Christ and you rise again on Easter Sunday morning through baptism. So here is this catechesis going on and part of it is the handing over of the creed the teacher hands over the creed 
and the pupils learn it by heart and render it back. And this is the way in which they hang on to the basic fundamentals of what Christianity is all about. And in those catechetical lectures, we find them talking about the creeds as a summary of scripture. Not everybody can read, they say. Not everybody has access to the scriptures. So what we do is give you a summary so that you can hang on to what it's all about. It's this overarching story from creation to the end into which our lives fit. But if it's a summary of scripture, what's missing? What's missing? Think of the creeds. You have all those long, long historical things all through the Old Testament, don't you? But actually, the creeds only talk about creation and then jump to Christ, don't they? And then you have all the stuff in the Gospels about life and teaching of Jesus. Is that in the creeds? No, the creeds are only interested in his birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and so on, right? So what the creed is doing is starting at the beginning with creation, focusing on the middle, the the Christ event, which makes all the difference, and then the end, the fruition of God's purposes at the end. In fact, the genre of the creeds is like an ancient hymn. It's a bit like the Te Deum or the Gloria. It's pulling out the things you want to celebrate in liturgical anamnesis, to use the technical term. All it is is the Greek word for memory. And it's about remembering and reminding and rehearsing and playing over and over again in liturgy what the whole thing is all about. And if you stop to think about it, the creeds don't give us any kind of dogma or doctrine of a trinity as such, do they? They don't give us... Hmm? Remission of sin, yes. Uh, yes, we'll come to that in a minute. Uh, they don't have any actual dogma or doctrine of the Trinity spelt out. There is no theory about the person of Jesus Christ as being fully God and fully man, is there? And there is no actual atonement theory. Yes, there is remission of sins. Um, but what we don't find is propositions or articles of belief. What we find is confessions of faith, of trust, of loyalty, a celebration in community of the way the world is and the lifestyle which you adopt because of that in distinction from the way people live in the world around you. So why is it important for us to keep saying them? Well, my first suggestion is that they belong to community. They belong to Christian identity. And if we're going to have not just ecumenism 
in this room and at this time, but ecumenism over time and history, we need to take them very seriously because they help us to understand that we're part of something bigger than ourselves. They call us into commitment. They call us beyond that self-sufficiency, my truth, into that sort of intellectual humility which says, this is part of a huge story that makes sense of what life is all about. And I'm not going to pick off little bits that I have difficulties with. I'm going to enter into the celebration of the whole thing. We'll come back to some of that in a minute. The second reason I think we should hang on to them is that they do imply the whole overarching story. They do suggest that we've got three characters, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in a fantastic drama of which our existence is part. And this whole thing is important. We shouldn't pick off bits. We shouldn't say, well, this is okay, but mm, not sure about that. Um, and of course, the things we might not be sure about will be the virgin birth and the resurrection. We'll come back to that in a minute. My point is the whole thing hangs together. And the story is about a truth which is deeper than just the language in which it's told. It's a truth that makes sense of life, the universe, and everything and particularly of my self, if I'm humble enough to let it make that sense. And the third reason is, I think it's a classic case of allowing that language can be stretched to speak of larger truths than its immediate simple meaning which may not be what it's really about. God is way beyond, and yet God's very self is present in that human life lived by Jesus. Those are the reasons why I think we need to keep saying them. But the difficulties creation, virgin birth, resurrection of the flesh. Will you give me five minutes to say something about this? <laughs> uh, my own researches have convinced me that the first doctrine, in the sense of something re relatively defined, the first doctrine to be established was the doctrine of creation. You see, uh, philosophers thought maybe there was some divine principle which had created in the sense of ordering some sort of inert matter. Uh, and uh, so everything was made out of a pre-existent matter. 
And then there were other people in the second century who were trying to argue that everything came out of the ultimate depth of the divine, whatever it was. So everything is ultimately out of God's own self. Um, and what the Christians established was neither could be right. That God, as the sovereign of the universe, brought into being everything out of nothing. You see, if there was matter there, there were two first principles, two gods, if you like, but God, no, God, God alone is the ultimate. And matter and stuff doesn't come out of God by some sort of horrible accident, which is what some people were suggesting. No, everything is created by God out of nothing, and God said it is good. This was important and distinctive. It wasn't universally accepted by Jews and Christians immediately, because after all, in Genesis, you've got the chaos, and you've got the spirit hovering over the chaos, which could be the matter, couldn't it? So it was possible to take a different philosophical interpretation of Genesis. But the principle was established in the second century, and this meant that the material the fleshly, could not be evil, could not be anti-God. It was good because it's God's creation. And it meant that salvation could never be escape from the physical or the bodily, which is what some spiritually-minded people were claiming in the second century. And this is what enabled sacramentalism the good things of life, the bread and the wine and the water become the vehicle of God's presence and become sacred within the context of liturgy. And you know Helena, the mother of Emperor Constantine, when she went to the Holy Land, she brought back a whole truckload of earth from the sacred spot where the feet of Jesus had trodden so that she'd have it to pray on back in her palace at Rome. Dirt is sacred, okay? Now, this was quite revolutionary in the ancient world, and I believe it is absolutely at the core of what Christianity is about. And it has certain consequences, the early fathers argued time and again for the resurrection of the body or the flesh, not the soul's immortality. Body and soul are God's creation, all alike. The soul is not automatically immortal. Body and soul are God's creation. And the whole of the created human, not a bit of it, is to be raised to new life when God's ultimate purposes come to fruition. And, of course, Paul, wrestling with exactly these issues, talked about spiritual body. Now, I mean, they had their difficulties, wondering whether, you know, what sort of state we'd be in if we were raised 
as uh, at the very flesh that we were. But you see, they said it doesn't matter if you're drowned and eaten by fish. It doesn't matter if you're burnt up in fire. If God could create you in the first place, God can recreate you in a new and transformed resurrection body. So creation is fundamental to early Christian theology, and that's why these things are in the creed. So now you're going to say, what about the virgin birth? Well, I don't think it was ever about genetics. The early church was absolutely adamant that this was not like the Greek god Zeus having physical intercourse with a woman, which happens plenty enough in Greek mythology. The word which was translated virgin originally meant a young maiden. And there are two things which I think put it in a slightly different, if you like, mythological frame, but actually a myth with truth at the heart of it. Luke talks about the Holy Spirit hovering over, overshadowing Mary, using the very language of the Spirit hovering over the chaos at creation. Luke is saying, this is the recreation, the new creation of humanity which went wrong in Adam. It's about new creation more than anything else. Geza Vamesh, a Jewish scholar who spent a lot of his life studying the New Testament, also draws attention to an interesting fact. All the miracle births in the Old Testament are to old ladies beyond the possibility of conceiving who'd been barren all their lives. Do you remember Hannah and Sarah and, you know? Mary, he suggests, was a premenstrual teenager. And so the miracle birth is the miracle of the new, the new creation. And so it's not about genetics. It's about understanding the deeper truth of what God was doing through Jesus Christ for our sake and for our salvation. Thank you.